Jonah 4, verse 1. Uh, after the Ninevites were saved, Jonah's response is here. It says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So the Lord holds up the mirror to Jonah and he says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. Notice he did not answer. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, here's the mirror again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Watch his response. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So I don't know that there is a more bizarre ending to any book of the Bible. I, I Listen, you know I honor the Word of God, and I reverence it, and I know that God has purposes in everything He does, down to the last jot and tittle of the Bible. But there is, I, 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 I want to say, give me at least verse 12 in chapter 4, and God says it doesn't exist. That was the end of the book of Jonah. And it ends with a reference to cows. There's a lot of animals in the book of Jonah. You got a, you got a whale, you got a worm, and you got some cows. And, and in, in the midst of this very bizarre, strange book of the Bible, the Lord has much for us to learn. And tonight, I'm just going to let it be what it is. There's a temptation in preaching and teaching that you, you want to tie up all the loose ends, package it up pretty nice, give it to you on a, you know, an outline with four alliterated points and send you home and you're all happy. You, you can't do that with the book of Jonah. And so I'm just going to let it be what it is tonight. And I, I want to talk to us especially about two components that we see in Jonah's life that we have to dislodge from our lives. And we have to fight like heaven against these two things taking up residence in our heart because they are a cancer to the soul. And we're going to see them portrayed in Jonah's life tonight. And we'll bring in some New Testament verses too. So follow with me here. We'll start back up in verse number 1. It's only 10, uh, 10, 11 verses that we read. And the, the very first thing I want to do is I want to take a yet another look at the tender God and his angry child. This, this 
relationship between God and Jonah is like a Rubik's Cube. It's just got so many different patterns and sizes to it. But here we have God being tender and Jonah entering back into a, an, another level of sinful disposition with God. First of all, anger, anger had settled in Jonah's heart. Look in verse number one. The Bible says it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, in English, that's what translation I'm reading. I'm reading the English Standard Version. You're reading an English Bible more than likely. It's kind of a, um, it's kind of a downplay on what the Hebrew says. If, if you had a Hebrew lexicon or if you had the ability to, to, to learn Hebrew, you, you would know that this is what it's saying. It, it is saying that Jonah was burning angry with God. He was fired up. It's, it's exceedingly heated towards God. He is, he is not pouting at this point. He is, he is not just uh, frustrated. The Bible indicates because Nineveh has repented. That's what he's mad at. He's mad because a bunch of people he didn't like got saved. And he is furious with God about it. It's almost like this has been bottling up. Remember his story. He never wanted to go to Nineveh in the first place, but God convinced him in the sea, in the belly of a whale, why he was going to go to Nineveh. So he goes through Nineveh, and he's basically preaching a message of doom. Turn, or you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. He goes through the city. He marches up the hill. He's about to build him this little booth. But while he's going through the city, all these people are repenting. They're turning to Yahweh. Jonah didn't want them to be saved. He wanted them to be damned. He wanted them to be destroyed. And so he is very upset that the, his least favorite people group on planet Earth are experiencing revival. And God forced him to be the messenger that brought the revival. And so the, it, it literally says that Jonah felt like that it was evil against him. That, that word displeased in the English translates a Hebrew word that speaks of evil or wrongdoing to something to be noxious or foul to you. That's the way he felt about what God was doing. He was angry with the Lord. But verse number two, it gives vocabulary to this inward anger. How many of you know that an angry heart doesn't stay silent forever? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And so Jonah had been doing like a lot of people do. They're mad with God, but they're too religious to say anything to God about it. So they go through the motions of pretending that everything's fine. Meanwhile, they're living day in and day out, and they've got an attitude towards God. And then finally, God shepherds them to a place where they can't be silent any longer because God knows that the healthiest thing that can happen to that child is for that child to get honest with himself or herself about how they feel towards God. And by the way, God can handle it. God's heard way worse than what Jonah is going to say. And this proceeds through the mouth. So he prayed to the Lord and said, look at this. He's mad at God, and here it comes. Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're gracious. I knew that you're merciful. I know that you're slow to anger, and I know that you abound in steadfast love, and you, you, you stop the disaster I wanted you to send. That's literally what he was saying. That's a, uh, kind of got the heat on it. He's, he's very upset with God because God is gracious, because God is merciful, because God is compassionate and kind and slow to anger, and God is faithful. He hates that about God. Why? Because other people that he doesn't like are benefiting from all of that. And so he is very upset with the Lord. I don't know where you have to go in life to be upset with God's mercy and his grace and his patience and his love for others, but that's where Jonah 
had found himself. I'm not going to pull any punches on this. Jonah is a prejudiced prophet. He is absolutely incensed that God would show the kindness that he thought should have belonged to his people, and God is just indiscriminately, apparently, pouring it out on these pagans in Nineveh. And so Jonah's own uh, prejudice, his national, uh, nationalist uh, zeal is coming home uh, in a way that he didn't anticipate. But here's the thing. It was out of the mouth, it was in his heart, but it, it was beginning to get rooted in the spirit. Look in verse number three. It's beyond emotional. It's not just emotions. This is getting into his spirit. Therefore now, O Lord, watch this, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. That's where Jonah had gotten. Jonah was so frustrated with what the Lord was doing that he didn't want to see it anymore. He didn't want to see these people repenting. He didn't want to see God being merciful. He didn't want to see God being gracious. Jonah didn't like anything that God was doing in his life. So he says, Lord, why don't you just kill me? It's better for me to die than to go on living watching this stuff. See, that's when it gets in your spirit when you're starting to... to, um, desire destruction more than deliverance you start wanting a way out instead of bringing yourself down before the holy god and saying lord you're the lord i'm not and so it had gotten so deeply in his spirit that um it was changing who he was you would think that after his because this is not doesn't sound like the same guy that we met in chapter two who was praying in the fish's belly and I was like, Lord, you are just, you are holy. I will, I will keep my vows. I will do. You brought me up from the pit and you brought me out of the grave. And, and he gets the second chance. And then in the midst of that second chance, now that he's out of the fish's belly, God is operating in a way that Jonah still doesn't like. And Jonah's just done. And he wants to, he wants to leave planet Earth. Now, look at the Lord. By the way, this is why you're not God. And this is yet another reason why I'm not God. Think about what you would have done. For those of you that dare to be honest. You said, oh, you want to die, do you? Boom! <laughs> Your wish is my command. You are gone. But not God. God just calm, compassionate, even kind. And he holds up the mirror to Jonah. Look in verse number four. This anger was addressed by the Father. The Lord said, do you well to be angry? Do you well to be angry, Jonah? Um, this kind of bitterness and anger, and those are the two things that, that we, we have to consistently, um, they're like weeds in the lawn, man. They're just going to keep growing back, but our responsibility is to pull them up as soon as we see them. And God just looks at Jonah, and instead of telling Jonah what he wanted to say, he just gave Jonah the opportunity, hey, Jonah, why don't you look in the mirror? Why don't you look at your own heart? And just answer one question, Joan. I'm going to let you answer. Is it good for you to be angry? It's a very important question, not just for Jonah, but us. I don't have a whole lot of time tonight to segue, but I will tell you this. The thing that kept me imprisoned uh, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, mentally, volitionally, I I was in the prison of anger from the age of nine until uh, after my salvation, Uh, I would say a couple of years after my salvation. I was a little boy, and I I can see it right now. I walked into my den because my mother and my father said, Jeff, we need to talk to you. And so I came into the den, I sat down, and I remember uh, my dad sitting over here, and I immediately felt the tension in the room, and my mom was over here. I, I was just about eight or nine years old, and I remember my dad saying, your mother has something to tell you. 
And my mom said, I'm leaving. And she said, I've got to go find myself. Now, I didn't know what was happening in the moment, but I remember as soon as I heard it, I got up off the couch. And you remember that old wood paneling in the 70s that was everywhere? <laughs> I remember just being a little third grade boy and, and storming out of that room and just punching uh, into the wood paneling with my little fist. And I became angry in that moment because my world caved in and I stayed angry. And I, become, I became angrier all the way up until my deliverance, when I was saved and delivered from so many things, I would say the last stronghold that God tore down in my life was anger. I, I, I hate to confess this, but I was kind of an angry Christian. I just found I was angry at the devil. And, and, but the, the reality was I didn't have the wisdom in how to help people out of the devil's bondage. And so that anger came off as being angry at everybody. And it took, it literally took the work of the Holy Spirit. And then when I was finally and fully baptized in the Holy Spirit at the age of 32, God just whoosh, took it away. And though I still have the ability to get angry, but I'm not the Incredible Hulk anymore. I don't turn green. I don't pop out of my clothes. I don't go berserk anymore. But anger is deadly. Let me give you a few things that the Bible says about anger, because there may be some of you that your life is connected to somebody that's perpetually angry, or maybe, candidly, you wrestle with it yourself. But this is what the Bible says about anger that we don't deal with. It does become a stronghold. And even worse, it becomes a foothold for Satan and the demonic in our lives. Ephesians chapter number 4, verse 30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So we're given a command. Hey, Christian, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The very next verse says this. In the context of not grieving the Spirit of God, verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice or ill thinking towards others and then it says conversely be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as christ in god or god in christ forgave you and so one of the things that i learned was if i'm angry i'm living in a consistent state of of grieving the holy spirit of god so there's a breakdown in our our partnership if you can call it that way him living his life through me Paul said it a different way in Colossians 3, uh, verse 8. Now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. First one on the list, anger. Second, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. I'll just let that hang out there. God wants what comes out of our lips to be worthy of his presence. And so even down to the fact that, that the, the, the word of God connects foul language with an angry heart. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 again, it says this, in your anger do not sin. So we can, we can get angry, but we can't live being angry. In your anger don't sin, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And then verse 27 says, don't give the devil a foothold. I don't know how all of that works, but I do know this, that a person who is perpetually living in some level of anger is to that same degree walking outside of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. When you're walking outside of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, you're going to act in ways that expose you for the enemy to come in and get a foothold in your life. Now, we don't think about it. I want you to remove a phrase out of your vocabulary. I, I just pray that you will be able to be victorious and never say this again. He made me angry. She made me angry. The fact of the matter is nobody has that power over you. Nobody can make you angry. Frankly, we give in to weakness, and we respond in a sinful way to a lot of things that are negative in our lives, and we can become angry, but nobody has the ability to make Christians angry. Well, let me go a little bit further, because the, the anger kind of is like on the surface, but when it's not dealt with, it, it seeps in. 
and it becomes what the Bible commonly refers to as bitterness. And bitterness can come from a lot of different directions. But let's, let's go on in Jonah, and I'll come back to the concept of bitterness. So, Jonah, do you, be, do, you do well to be angry? And the implication is, Jonah, is it proper for you to be angry with me, your God? And God's just asking him a question. Now, we know the answer, right? Jonah probably did too, but he doesn't give an answer here. He literally gets busy doing something else, as we'll see here in a second. So let's go down to verses 5 through 9. This is where we're going to see the pouting prophet and his ignorance of his own self. First of all, Jonah felt nothing for Nineveh. He had a, a heart that was completely stone cold against an entire race of people. And the back end of it was when they got saved, he wasn't rejoicing. He didn't even want to be around them. Look in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city. Revival is happening, and he's getting out of town. And he went to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. This is weird. I don't understand Jonah's actions. I mean, he is still seemingly operating in a hope that maybe God would change his mind and send down, you know, fire and brimstone from heaven on the Ninevites. So what does he do? He gets some nosebleed seats. He, he goes up and he marches out of the city, goes a little bit east. He finds himself a good lookout position. He gets some, some uh, tree limbs and whatever and builds him a booth and sits down. And the Bible says he's waiting to see what was going to happen to the city. His heart is still attached to this, this insanity that that God has to judge these people. And, and the reason why he is under this kind of impression is because he's being fueled, not by the grace of God, not by the compassion of God, not by the mercy of God, not by the goodness and the tenderness and the love of God, but he is holding out for the wrath of God to fall. And so until that happens, Jonah's not going to be overly satisfied. Um, Jonah did his duty, though. You know, while I'm exposing some of the stuff that we don't understand his life. Let me, let me say this. Um, he did fulfill the commission. He went through Nineveh and preached it. And so as with many believers, let me give you this, as with many believers, God had Jonah's obedience but did not have Jonah's trust. That's a miserable way to live, by the way. The, the proportion of people that I think are streaming into our church houses that are kind of moving in and out of Christian dumb there is this religious spirit of fear, especially down here in the Bible Belt, that comes upon people so they know they can't live in outright defiance of God. So they figure out what rules they're comfortable keeping. They, they kind of prop up um, a pseudo-relationship with God. So these people will attend church. These people might tithe. These people will maybe, maybe pray. They'll, they'll go to church meetings. They'll, they'll do a lot of religious activity, but they still don't trust God. There's no joy in it. There's, there's not a lot of peace. As a matter of fact, they, when, when they have a down day, when they don't go to church or they don't pray or they don't give, all of a sudden this fear creeps in because their entire relationship is built on this slavish fear of disobeying a God that can destroy me instead of that relationship being built on a hunger and a desire to please the one that they know loves them. That's the difference between a religion. That's a difference between religion and relationship. And so Jonah obeyed, but he might as well not have. 
He sent Balaam's donkey to preach the message. He could probably get that message to Nineveh without Jonah, but what God really wanted was Jonah's heart. This whole story is about God going after Jonah's heart to bring in into submission um, the, the, the rebellious part of Jonah so that Jonah would learn the joy of submitting unto God, not the fear of what might happen if you don't. So verse number six, Jonah valued relief for himself, but not others. The Bible says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. First time in the book of Jonah, by the way, look what it says. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. We haven't seen this prophet crack a smile or be pleasant about anything in the whole chapter. But God puts a, a gourd plant over him overnight, a miraculous raising up of a plant. It comes over Jonah with its broad leaves, and Jonah is not sitting out in that, that um, Persian heat blistering there. He's gotten some shade. So for the first time, this man of God is happy. And look what the context is. Comfort for himself. He got something. I don't know, man. Maybe we overestimate our own spirituality, but... I would like to think that I'd be happier over a bunch of pagans getting saved than I would, you know, a, a visor over my head, keeping my bald head from getting burnt. I'd like to think that. So Jonah is finally happy about something, but it's not going to last. It's a setup. It's a divine setup. The Lord giveth and the worm taketh away. Here we go. Verse number seven. We see Jonah wrapped up in self-pity. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Now here he goes again. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Here is this pouting prophet wrapped up in self-pity let me let me tell you what happens when bitterness and anger get go unchecked in our lives this is important what what inevitably happens to a person that is wrapped up in anger and bitterness and 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 just continues in that is they will inevitably become self-absorbed everything is about them now some of you are thinking about people in your life you, you know people like this and, and we love them, we want to help them, but there is like a 20-foot thick wall between what we want to help them with and their ability to receive it. Because when you live with anger and it becomes bitterness, you just want everybody to either serve you, you become the central place where the, everybody else orbits, or you want them to just completely leave you alone. But irregardless, it, it, it becomes about you in that moment. And so Jonah got to enjoy the shade for a night he wakes up in the morning and the worm has eaten the plant and the plant is dead and he he gives the second stanza to the suicide song and he says lord i want to die but he's not saying it in wah, wah, wah. He's, he's saying it like this he's angry it's interesting you find in the book of jonah there's four chapters and there's four mentions of god appointing something in the life of Jonah. He appointed the fish. Um, he appointed the 
plant. He appointed the worm that ate the plant, and he appointed the, the east wind, or that wind that started blowing through and just bringing that, that desert heat on him. I, I was thinking about this. I was like, man, as God goes after people, and he always does this in love, that, that's something that we, we need to remember as his children, that when he goes after us, when he's wanting to shift our hearts, when he's, he's bringing us to a place where we've got to look in the mirror and say, you know what? It's not condemnation. It's revelation. I, I need to change in this area. And, and sometimes God will hold up the mirror and you'll see a place in your heart and you're saying, I, don't, I cannot change. I've been this way. I, I've, I am this way. It's so ingrained in me. It's part of who I am. And that actually may be true in the sense that in your human ability, you can't change it on your own. But what is that supposed to do? It's supposed to bring us to a breaking point where we, we say like the man in Jesus' parable, God, be merciful unto me. I'm a sinner. Lord, I still have these propensities to struggle in my flesh, and I can't do this on my own. And so the Lord comes through that brokenness and that contrition, and he begins to work. Let me tell you how serious it is for us, and especially, I've just, I mean, I feel like my whole life in ministry is to just sound the the trumpet before the second coming. I just feel like, you know, the biggest thrust of of what God's called me to do is to keep people awake and keep your eyes on, on the reality, man, he is coming like very soon. And, and Jesus asked an amazing question. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And, and so I want, to be, I want to be one of those people that says, just stay focused. Keep your eyes on the prize. It's worth it. Keep moving. Jettison off of your life anything that is holding you down because it's important. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 12, verse 17, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by that many are defiled matthew jesus said this in matthew when we're speaking of bitterness and sometimes that comes through people doing us wrong and we got a raw deal and we haven't been treated properly or valued or we've been hurt in some way by somebody or some people and 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 we give ourselves permission to to seal our hearts off and to act in judgment to refuse to forgive and, and guys, I just want to tell you, that's an illegal move in the kingdom. Yeah. We're actually, we, we're under no circumstances, as tough as they are sometimes, as, as tough as they are, we are never given permission by God to refuse to forgive. It's a tough word, but it is true. Jesus said this in Matthew 7 too, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I'll give you this. This doesn't have a whole lot to do with the message, but one of the reasons about a decade and a half ago I started really pursuing tenderness and mercy and grace and compassion is because I realized I was actually setting the measuring stick by which I was going to be measured by God. And I wasn't very merciful. And I started realizing, man, I need mercy. And yet I am setting the capacity for me to receive mercy very low because I'm not giving mercy. And I literally started praying, God, I don't want to be judged by you the way I judge others. I don't want to be forgiven by you the way that I forgive others. And so, Lord, I'm asking you, increase my capacity to release people that have wronged me. 
Increase my desire never to harbor resentment in my heart, lest by it I become defiled. And I literally made that a prayer, and it probably took a year of just praying that consistently to where I I now find it, it's a joy that when you have an opportunity to forgive somebody that's wronged you, you have this ability to say, I will forgive them to the degree that I've been forgiven by him. And and when you're released, you're free. So, well, Jeff, that doesn't sound just. Oh, well, just remember, he's going to balance the scales when he's ready. You and I don't get to balance the scales. We're not qualified. But he said he would. And so when we release them, we're actually freeing ourselves. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful because they'll receive mercy. Jesus also said this in Matthew, oh, excuse me, Luke 17. Watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. See, that's in there. You get a little dig. You get a little license to say something. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times he comes back to you and says, I repent, Jesus said, forgive him. Then also in Luke chapter number seven, here's the principle that that, um, really empowers forgiveness. This is how, this is the mirror. Jesus was giving... um, a statement to a Pharisee. Do you remember where he was in the Pharisee's home and the, the, the woman of ill repute came into the home and began to worship and weep over his feet and wash his feet with her hair and this Pharisee was standing in the corner. I think it was Simon the Pharisee. And he's like, if, if this guy was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is touching him. And Jesus read his mind, literally read his mind. He said, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. That's King James again. Thank you, Lord. Give me another King James verse tonight. Maybe that'll erase the memory of the first one. So Jesus gives this parable, and he says, Simon, I came into your house as a guest. You didn't do anything for me. But this woman, since she has come in, has not ceased to wipe my feet with her hair. She's washed my feet with her tears, and she anointed my head. Simon, you didn't do any of that. And Jesus gives this parable, and the end of the parable, here's the thing. He says, therefore, I say to you, Simon the Pharisee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And then Jesus gives this massive principle. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Watch this. The key to being able to forgive at a high capacity, the key to being able to release people and grace people and love people in spite of how they may have treated us, the key is to know how much you have personally been forgiven by God. That is the catalyst to forgiveness in us. Jesus said, the one who has only been forgiven a little will love little. The one who's been forgiven much will love much. The key is this, friends. Ask God to just continually impress you of how much you've been forgiven. And if we can really, and that's not supposed to make, that's supposed to make us happy and excited. When I think of how much I've been forgiven, and man, it would, it'd send you out of the room if I gave you my past. You'd go run and you'd grab your kids, you'd never come back. If you knew my past, but when I think that it's all forgiven, I don't say, oh, what a terrible person. I say, hallelujah, I am not that guy anymore. And if God in his infinite holiness It did not bring judgment on me, but lavishly graced me and forgave me and accepted me and restored me and walks with me, then I'm going to be able to do that with other people. But if you only think you've been forgiven a little, if you only believe that you've been forgiven a little bit, then you're going to have a really hard time being forgiving, being loving. 
You see, my friends, you don't have to have a, a history like mine to acknowledge the magnitude of God's grace in your life. All you've got to do is recognize how holy he is. And you'll start recognizing that your sin is as grievous as a guy like me. So when we're enthralled with his holiness and we recognize that the offense is against him, it makes us see the severity of our sin. And then in that same instant, we know that he has forgiven all of that. So we feel this relief and this release. And this question comes to mind. If I have been forgiven so much by him, how in the world can I hold in judgment somebody like her or this guy? And it literally frees you up. And you don't have to live in bitterness. Um, I don't have a magic pill for, for bitterness to disappear from our lives. But I can tell you this. I promise you this. If you'll pursue what I just spent five minutes talking to you about, and you'll ask God to just give you a sense of how lavishly, graciously, and fully you have been pardoned by the holiest, highest authority in the cosmos, something will shift inside of you to where you will be empowered to forgive people horizontally that have done you wrong. So let me get down back into this outline. He, he, he asked the Lord to kill him. It's better for me to die than to live. What brought him to that point? He was sunburned. He got sunburned. He was hypersensitive to what aggravated him and completely dead to what should be celebrated in others. It was all about him. It was a really bad place for Jonah to get. And it's, I believe it's one of the most dangerous places our heart can go. Look down at verse number 9. So here's my summary statement about where Jonah was in this moment. I know this isn't encouraging, but I'm just preaching what's written there. It doesn't have a nice ending. Jonah was far away from God, bottom line. So God holds up the mirror, and he, just calm, cool, collected, the Almighty says, do you, be, do you do well to be angry for the plant? I mean, God is amazing. I would have probably you know, obliterated Jonah the first time he asked to die because of the way he asked it and r- railed against God and impugned God's, you know, will But the second time, God just shows extra mercy. And he's literally saying, hey, Jonah, check your heart. Is this really right for you to be angry over this plant? Jonah, it's a plant. And you're angry and you want to die over it. That's what happens when bitterness seeps into the soul it brings about a spiritual insanity. You're not, you're not seeing things correctly. Listen, I, I know this is, well, let me quit talking about what it is and just say it. You don't think rightly when you're in the bondage of anger. You don't see things rightly. There is literally a degree of constant confusion on you. It affects every relationship you're in. It affects your posture before the Lord. Because ultimately, if we trace down anger, especially as people that believe in God, have surrendered to the Lord, have accepted Christ, and especially when you know that he's sovereign, the little hidden question that 
really kind of beats in the, the bitter Christian's heart is, God, why'd you let this happen? And it just beats. With every beat, it pulses through our system. Why'd you let this happen to me? Why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you do what I wanted you to do? And bitterness is usually kind of spilled on people, but it's usually sourced in our misunderstanding of something with God. And so Jonah is in that place, and God doesn't go off on him. He just says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Look what Jonah says. Verse 9, he says, yeah. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. So Jonah's having the mirror held in front of him, and he's trying to push the hand down. He's like, yeah, I got to write it. Listen, here's one of the most dangerous places our hearts can go. It is when we come to that place in life where we give ourselves the right to live in continual bitterness and anger. And it can happen. The beauty of it is this. When we're made aware of it, we have the wonderful luxury of being able to say, this is wrong. This is not of the Lord. I don't like this. Nobody else likes this. This this thing that is in me, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And God says, I will. I'll deliver you. I'll set you free right now. I'll let my love be shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. I'll transform the way you think. I I will make you into a brand new creature in this instance of how you are relating to me and relating to others. And, And Jonah didn't want that. Jonah at this point had given himself permission to live in anger and to die in anger. That's what he said. He said, yeah, I've got a right to be angry, and I'll die this way. I'm depressed. I don't even want to be here right now. This is depressing. (laughs) It is. It's depressing. It's like, Jeff, it's Valentine's Day, man. Come on. Where's the 1 Corinthians 13 message that we came here to hear tonight? Well, there is going to be something to cheer you up before we get out of here. So let me me give you these last two verses, and, and, and I'm going to be done. So here's where the Lord explains to Jonah where his thinking is messed up. It's the faithful father and his compassionate character. Verse number 10. First of all, there's revelation from the father. The Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant. Jonah, you didn't labor for that plant. You didn't make it grow. It came into being last night, and it perished before the sun rose. He's setting Jonah up. He said, Jonah, why do you have this level of intense negativity towards something like a plant. Jonah, it's not like it was precious to you for all of these years. It's not like you poured your life into making it happen. Jonah, it, it, it came and it went, and you're ready to die over it. He's, just, he's holding the mirror up, and he's, he's just saying, Jonah, the proportion of your negative emotional response does not jive with what you're focused on. You know, there's a lot of different ways we could say it, but we, we might say it this way. Jonah, man, you need to get things in perspective. You're blowing this way out of proportion. That's what happens when you're dominated by the stronghold of anger or bitterness or for, any, for that matter, any other um, negative trait. And so look at what the Father says. This is how the book of Jonah ends. He gave him that, he gave him that revelation on why Jonah was thinking wrong, and then he gives him something to reason with. Verse 11. Jonah, you're upset about the plant. You didn't do anything for that plant. And he says in verse 11, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? 
What's the Lord saying there? He's saying, Jonah, you're angry at me because of what I've done for Nineveh. Jonah, you hate those people. But Jonah, watch this. Do you see your response to the gourd, to the leaf, to the shade? And Jonah, you didn't do anything to get that, but you're wanting to die over it. You're, you're passionate about that. God says, shouldn't I be passionate over all these people who are ignorant and lost, who don't know their right hand from their left hand? Jonah, doesn't that make sense? So what God does is in that moment, by the way, I think it's very interesting that God counted the people in Nineveh. He is so interested in the individual. He doesn't save entire nations. He saves people, individuals, one at a time. And God looked down and he said, there's 120,000 people down there that are rebellious, they're pagan, they're ignorant, and I love them. And I made them. And I'm going after them, Jonah, because that's my heart. And that's where the story ends. So the question is this. If there was a verse 12, would it say, and everything started to make sense to Jonah, and he got his heart right with God? I'm going to ask you this. This is just something I, I, just, I think maybe the Lord showed me today. Most scholars believe Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. Do we honestly think that he would have written all of that having never gotten right with God? I'm just going to believe that when I get up to glory, and somewhere maybe around year 2,555,312, I'll say, Jonah? And he'll say, Jeff. Say, Jonah, come here, man. Tell me what happened. I just want to believe that. Why? Because, listen, if God went to such great lengths to save a pagan, idolatrous, rebellious city like Nineveh, don't think for a second he gave up on Jonah in Jonah's worst moment. And that's why, again, and I'm done, we should never give up on anybody. Don't ever give up on anybody. The challenge for some of you is very pinpoint. Some people have hurt you. They have disappointed you. They've lied to you. They've let you down. Maybe they harmed you. When God holds up the mirror, look into it and see the face of the Savior. And he's not going to be scowling at you. He's going to be smiling. He's going to be gracious and merciful and understanding and compassionate. But he's going to invite you to look long enough into his face to where you begin to see your own because he's making you like him.